Hi, I'm Rena Grobe. And I'm Madhvi Romani. And this is Misinformed, the podcast for lazy but smart people. Every week we'll be discussing a different trend or topic so you can stay informed the easy way. So, Madhvi, what's the topic this week? So this is going to be a long introduction, but it's a summary of many important developments and situations that will help paint a wider picture of the world right now. So recently, I've been thinking about food scarcity. First of all, because there's a newsletter that I follow called Proximities. It lands in your inbox every day and briefly outlines three non-Western news stories. It's written by journalist Barry Malone, and I recommend subscribing. You can just search for Proximities newsletter Barry Malone, or we'll link to it in our newsletter that goes out every Monday, and you can find the link to that on our SoundCloud or Insta pages. Anyway, when the war in Ukraine broke out, Malone pointed out that it would have an impact on wheat exports, since Russia and Ukraine are two of the biggest suppliers of wheat. In fact, between them, they export more than a quarter of the world's wheat. Of course, this wheat thing will have an impact on our economies. However, its impact on countries which have fragile economies or are going through their own conflicts, such as Libya, Yemen and Tunisia, is going to be much more serious because rising food prices can destabilize nations. The various revolutions that started in the Middle East and North Africa in 2010-2011 were partly sparked by surging food prices. And as one example, 70% of Egypt's wheat comes from Russia and Ukraine. And we're already seeing the impact of this. So by March the 9th, which is 11 days ago, there were protests in Iraq over rising food prices due to war. A retired teacher called Hassan Kassem said to the AFP news agency, the rise in prices is strangling us, whether it's bread or other food products. We can barely make ends meet. By March the 14th, just six days ago, the BBC reported that there were protests in Sudan after the price of bread increased by more than 40%. And then also there's climate change and drought and war affecting people's ability to eat, which is simply not being reported on because of the war due to the focus and racism of Western media. An example of this is it's been pointed out that when Ukrainians use Molotov cocktails, it's termed as resistance, whereas when Palestinians do it, it's called terrorism. And when white lives are impacted by war, it gets way more focus, attention and sympathy than black lives or people of colour when they're affected. So the journalist Amanda Sperber, who is based in East Africa, tweeted this the other day. People are dying of thirst in Somalia because of drought. Livestock heave and shudder before they keel over. The environmental shocks in the region are linked to climate change. The planet is quickly becoming uninhabitable. It's impossible to publish a story on this right now. I also read a devastating piece in The New Yorker about Afghanistan right now where people are starving as well and there's real food scarcity. And in this article, the UN World Food Programme country director Mary Ellen McGurty told the reporter, 
22.8 million Afghans are already severely food insecure, and 7 million of them are one step away from famine. You have the drought banging into the economic crisis, and it's been one of the worst droughts in 30 years. It's just devastating to watch. If I were an Afghan, I'd flee. Which then brings up questions again about, you know, refugees and which lives are saved and which lives are not. And that brings me to just one last example to do with food scarcity in the light of the war in Ukraine. Last week, a fundraising conference for Yemen raised $1.3 billion, less than a third of what the UN said was needed to respond to the world's worst humanitarian crisis. This is what the UN calls the world's worst humanitarian crisis. So Martin Griffiths, the UN's humanitarian chief, said the amount was a disappointment and called the situation in Yemen dire. A war has raged there since 2014 and is being overshadowed by the events in Ukraine, and several experts say it is in danger of being forgotten. It's already been called the world's most underreported war. More than 4 million Yemenis have been forced from their homes, 377,000 people have died, and more than 20.7 million which is 71% of the population, are now in need of some form of humanitarian assistance or protection for their survival. And this includes 5 million who the UN says are on the brink of famine and almost 50,000 who are already experiencing famine-like conditions. So yeah, in an attempt not to forget the rest of the world and also just to see how it's all linked together in some ways, and to kind of provide a bigger picture, this is what we're talking about today. It's a lot, huh? I think maybe we should give people a bit of a context to what's happening in Yemen, because what's happening to the Yemeni people is absolutely terrible. And as you said, no one gives a shit, no one cares, no one's talking about it. And I do think it's very important to point out that like, trauma, refugees, all of these things, they're not a competition. No one's life is more valuable than anyone else. Just because there's a crisis in Yemen and we're talking about it now, it doesn't mean that the people of Ukraine who are fleeing are less deserving, but also the other way around. We are hyper-focused on Ukraine and we're giving Ukraine time, attention, and money and resources in terms of the refugees that we don't give to other countries. Again, they totally deserve it. Like, we should be helping Ukrainian refugees. That's not what I'm trying to say. But we hyper-focus on one crisis versus another. Actually, a friend of ours who is very involved in helping the refugees from Ukraine, she very specifically is helping non-Ukrainians who are fleeing Ukraine. And she was at the train station where they had put up signs, and they had a sign that said BIPOC, which stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. And the organizers were confused that not a lot of the refugees who fall into this category were coming up to them. And she had to point out to them, she's like, this is a very Western term. Of course, they're not coming up to you because they don't know what this means, because this is a very white lens to look at racial identity through. 
You said something very nice when I told you this. You said that, like, yeah. It's They're a not a person of colour where they come from. Yeah. The colour is maybe white would be a person of colour where they come from. Yeah, we just, the West has a very narcissistic view of the world where we think that our crises are more important than everyone else's crises. And also this idea that everyone consumes our media and our vocabulary and that everyone shares our perspective and that everyone is clued into our politics and she said that when she pointed this out to the woman, she was like, yeah, but they have the internet. And I'm like, the audacity to assume that someone in Congo is consuming Western media, like they have their own media, they have their own problems, they have their own news, they have their own websites, like this idea that everyone in the world is reading our resources and using our like, oh my God, what is wrong with you people? But then she was also telling us about how they housed a Moroccan mother and child who were fleeing from Ukraine, and the woman who was hosting them was like, I wanted Ukrainian refugees. They're not in danger. They're not from Ukraine. Like, I don't want them in my house. And she'd be like, they're still refugees. And she's like, no, I want Ukrainian refugees. But they were still fleeing the... They were still fleeing the conflict. And it's just like, people suck. But it just goes back to this idea of who do we think is worth saving? Which lives are worth talking about? Which refugees do we consider legitimate? And then, yeah, poor Yemen. So just to explain what is happening in Yemen, there has been a civil war in Yemen since 2014. The reason why this conflict is so disastrous, I mean, I guess all conflicts are disastrous, but specifically in Yemen, what's happening is you have the rebel group called the Houthis, and then you have the government. And like all things that are happening in the world that are terrible, Yemen is a poor country caught in a proxy war. This proxy war, or Cold War, is between Iran and Saudi Arabia, with Iran backing the Houthis and Saudi Arabia backing the government. And in turn, the United States of America is backing Saudi Arabia, which is the part of this entire... I mean, the whole thing's terrible, but anytime the United States gets involved in something, you're like, all right, here we go. The United States is getting involved in something that is none of their business, and they're going to completely mess it up. So Iran and Saudi Arabia are fighting to be the strongest power in the Middle East and North Africa. They're in a Cold War, like I said. And... They're fighting proxy wars all around the region, which is causing the death and suffering of millions of people. Yeah, in these proxy wars, Iran backs mostly Shia Muslim groups, and Saudi Arabia backs mostly Sunni Muslim groups, and Saudi Arabia is for maintaining the status quo, whereas Iran generally backs revolutions against dictatorships, like the groups that are revolting um, against dictatorships. Iran is always painted as a very evil player. In the Western media, it's like, Iran, they shouldn't have nuclear weapons, they're very terrible. To be honest... <laughs> is it because Iran keeps supporting revolutions against dictators backed by the United States of America? Yeah, and so like when I was like learning about this... I mean, Iran still does terrible things and it's uh, got a terrible human rights record. <laughs> but I was like, oh, I kind of see where Iran is coming from because what happened in, in Iran in 1979, 
there was a big revolution against the Shah. The Shah was backed by the US. And the Shah was trying to make Iran a Western secular state, which the people didn't actually want. And so, so the Shah was overthrown. And ever since then, when Saudi Arabia looked at that, they were like, oh, this is a big threat to our own power too, because if this revolution can happen in Iran, then, you know, the people in power in Saudi Arabia, they get really insecure. They were like, hey, this could happen in our country. And this is how this sort of Cold War happened. And the waiting has always been the same, more or less. Like, Saudi Arabia, like I said, supports dictators and the status quo, whereas Iran is for a bit more people power. (laughs) I mean, it's quite simplified, but... Also, just to be fair, there are a lot of other groups working within, you know, destabilized nations in this area, trying to take advantage of the chaos, basically. So then there's ISIS and there's Al-Qaeda and all of these different groups too. So it's very splintered. It's not just Iran and Saudi Arabia and Shia and Sunni. There are many, many, many different groups. And when a nation is destabilized and fragmented, then many different types of conflicts take place within this. Hmm. So coming back to Yemen, which is essentially suffering under this proxy war, not essentially, it very clearly is, the United States government does this very, very horrible, terrible thing where they essentially don't want to be implicated in committing war crimes, even though they very much are. So they do this really ridiculous thing where they essentially urge Saudi Arabia to not strike hospitals or schools or universities or funerals or markets where there are civilians, all the while Saudi Arabia does this, and the United States continues to supply them with weapons, because obviously, as we all know, someone always profits from war, and the United States war machine will not stop if there's money to be made. But amongst all of these things that they do, and there have been some changes between the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and the Biden administration that we'll get into a little bit later, but in 2016, they were doing this really great thing where they were flying refueling missions for Saudi Arabia, where they would send refueling planes from Turkey or their carriers in the ocean that would then link up with Saudi planes over international waters and refuel them. And as of November 2016, 1,600 refueling missions have taken place, and they've refueled 6,300 planes, which is about two a day. What this does, it means is that the planes can fly longer and carry out more airstrikes, thus increasing the amount of bombs they can drop. The United States sells Saudi Arabia these things called cluster bombs, which are largely rejected by the international community. So the United States sell cluster bombs to Saudi Arabia, they help them refuel, and then Saudi Arabia drops these bombs onto schools, hospitals, universities, markets of the poor Yemeni people who are caught in the middle of a conflict. Every 75 seconds, a Yemeni child dies of starvation. And again, Saudi Arabia plays a very big part in this because they have created a naval blockade around Yemen, which keeps out 85% of the food. So no food can come in. Saudi Arabia is dropping cluster bombs, and the United States is chill with this. Oh, but they try to keep themselves from being implicated by urging Saudi Arabia to 
comply to their no strike list, which means you can't bomb a school or a hospital. But so we've seen a lot of things like in Ukraine, and Putin has very rightly been accused and charged of war crimes now. Whereas this has been happening for years in Yemen, backed by the US. At some point, they sent out this memo or they, they wrote these things saying, you know, these are no strike lists. Can you avoid schools or whatever, which were not absolutely not avoided at all. And everyone knows that. And you can see in the pictures. And I think that was because there were these emails that were, were leaked you know, that showed these conversations happening in the White House, just being like, um, guys, I think we might get charged for war crimes here. You know, we could be complicit in this. And so they just, to cover their own backs, did this sent out this memo and it's totally not being respected. So we see the same problem and the same war tactics in Yemen, you know, for years that's now going on in Ukraine. Also, what's actually interesting is now the war tactics that were used by Russia in Syria are being referenced quite a lot when we discuss the tactics of Russia in Ukraine. But before, nobody was really very bothered about those either. Now it fits into their narrative. So now it's useful. Yeah, you said about the different administrations. So Biden campaigned on, we're going to end this terrible war in Yemen. We are going to stop supplying offensive weapons. Now, offensive is the key word here, because he didn't say we're going to stop supplying all weapons to Saudi Arabia. He said offensive weapons. And recently, they just signed a really big arms deal to Saudi Arabia again. So nothing really changed. But I think it's a rebranding where they just say now these are defensive weapons instead of offensive weapons. But it's the same thing. And amazing that he campaigned on this and there was no change. There was a change between him and Trump because Trump labeled the Houthis as terrorists, which stopped some humanitarian aid and stuff going through to them, all these areas, which Biden then reversed, which was good, I think. However, they might even reverse this again. And so like the situation has not really changed. Also interesting about this entire region when it comes to Iran is now that countries in the global north don't really want this Russian oil, there's a gap in the market. And so Iran, because of this war, has a little bit of a upper hand. And we can see how now diplomatic relations and deals and stuff are being done between the US and the UK and Iran. Last week, Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe, who is a dual British-Iranian citizen, was released after five years of imprisonment, along with another British-Iranian national who was also arrested when he, on a visit to Iran on totally trumped-up charges. And the reason that they were arrested, these are totally normal people, was because the UK basically owed Iran a lot of money from the time of the Islamic Revolution in 1979. After that revolution happened, the UK cancelled an agreement with the late Shah of Iran to sell the country more than 1,500 chieftain tanks. And since the Shah's government had paid in advance, the new Iranian government demanded a repayment for the tanks that were never delivered. The amount that Iran gave to Britain was... £393.8 million. Pounds. That's $515.5 million, which they just flat out refused to pay back. Which, you know, everyone knows if you buy something and you don't get it, it's basic consumer rights. You get your money back. But anyway, 
since then, they've been asking for the repayment of the debt and the British government didn't do it. And then they were saying there were sanctions and we can't do it. And they were just holding on to this money, which is completely wrong. And therefore, normal people got caught up in this. They got arrested. She was held. She's got a little daughter. She's missed five years of her daughter's life. Her husband, who's a British guy, actually did like hunger strikes. He was told by the British government at some point not to go public with it. And then at some point he realized, hey, I need media attention. So he kept her case in the media for quite a long time. And now she finally got released last week, which is a really big thing. So you can see all of these shifts in relationships just sort of happening too, due to this war and oil and money and nothing that's based on any integrity, really. Yeah, I mean, as you're saying, Iran kind of has a bit of the upper hand right now, don't they? Because Russian oil isn't being exported. That aside, people in Yemen are dying in a man-made famine. And because of being bombed? Yes, ridiculous war crimes are happening. And it's a bit infuriating that the world... It's not only that the world isn't paying attention, because I keep getting ads on YouTube from the UN about Yemen, about like the hunger crisis... And on TV, there's ads. So it's even worse than the world isn't paying attention. The world doesn't care. Well, like, we're all ready to get up in arms about the poor people in Ukraine. And they are poor people in Ukraine. Like, they're suffering terribly and they don't deserve it. And we need to help them 100%. But at the same time, there's famine and war happening across the world. And climate change. And we don't give a fuck. However, the misinformed team does give a fuck. Last year, we did a disobedient dinners to meet our community. This year, we're doing disobedient drinks where we're going to make some signature misinformed cocktails, both alcoholic and non-alcoholic. And we're inviting everyone in our community to come by, have a drink. And if you go out to a bar and have a drink, you're going to spend 10 euros on that. So we're asking you to donate whatever you can. And that money will be split between grassroots organizations that help Ukraine here in Berlin and Yemen. You can also bring any clothes or food or hygiene articles unopened, of course. And if you bring food, then please bring food that doesn't expire quickly. So no fresh things, so canned things. But yes, you can also bring clothes, shoes, scarves, hats, anything you may have. Bring that along too. We're accepting donations. Do not bring ball gowns and high heels. I don't think this is useful right now. So bring your donations and we will make sure that it gets to the right people in Berlin, the right organizations. We'll sort them out. Next week, we won't have a recorded episode, but we'll do a disobedient drinks instead. We'll be sorting out donations, making drinks, raising money. And we would love to have you all there. If you want to come, email us misinformed.podcast at gmail.com or we'll leave a link to a sign up sheet on our newsletter. It'll be next Sunday between 5 pm and 8 pm. Drop by whenever you like, start sorting out your wardrobes and your things right now. And we hope to meet you. Come drink and donate. Thank you for listening. We won't be here next week, but see you the week after that. Bye. If you like this show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also help us by supporting us on Patreon for as little as €4 Euro a month. Visit patreon.com slash misinformed.
For links to all our sources and for our personal tips on what to watch and read, subscribe to our weekly newsletter at misinformed.substack.com. You can follow us on Instagram at the underscore miss underscore informed or email us your feedback, requests, or just to say hi, misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.